I'm so glad you guys are here this morning. We're, we're beginning a new um, series of sermons here. We're gonna, I'm going to start preaching through the book of Colossians. And we're going to do a review today of kind of the background of Colossians, uh, some of the history of the, the town itself, and uh, to get kind of a framework that we can operate within as we work our way through Colossians. You know, there's, there's uh, three reasons why that you preach through books like this, expository preaching, where you just work your way through a, a book. And I think these are very important for us to grasp right at the beginning. One of those reasons is uh, when you preach through a book uh, from just from beginning to end, then you cannot avoid the difficult passages that show up in that, that book. A lot of times it's very easy for uh, ministers, if they know that there is a topic that is a little controversial, maybe it's showing up in society at the moment, maybe it's something that is uh, a, a hot topic, then uh, they'll stay away from those things. If they're concerned that it... Uh, maybe affects people within their local church, then they'll stay away from that topic. But when you preach through a book, you have to address it. It's coming next. Everyone in the, the congregation knows what the next verses are that you're going to be preaching on over the next week or the next few weeks. So it, it's there, and it pushes you. And I think that's a positive thing because it causes us as ministers of the gospel to have to do our due diligence and study and work hard through a passage so that we can understand it, so that we can appropriately communicate it within context, within the historical context, within spiritual context, and, and address difficult topics. Um, the second thing is closely akin to that, and it's pretty much this. Um, if you come to a difficult topic in a book, and it does apply to someone in your church, then nobody can say that, uh, that you were intentionally picking something out and pointing it toward them in particular. But uh, you, you, you're simply getting to it because it's there. The third reason that I find in, uh, in preaching through a book is that it causes us to get a better understanding of the book as a whole, because we don't take things out of context. We don't take verses or passages and try to make them uh, match something that we think, but we have to take them in the larger context of the book itself. So that's why we're going to work our way through the book of Colossians for however long it takes us to get there. We just want to get the real meat out of God's Word here in Colossians. So this, this church that, uh, that Paul, who is the writer of Colossians, because he's going to come out the gate and talk about this and introduces himself as the writer, as we're about to read. But Paul writes this to a church. It is to a group of people who essentially are in a city. And uh, that's where this, this book comes from. And so let's read through a portion of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in, in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's administration that was given to me for you to make God's message fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. For those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments for I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. 
Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by Him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in Him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or of a new moon or a Sabbath day. Those are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is the Messiah. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aesthetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with growth from God. If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. They are commands and doctrines of men. Although these have a reputation of wisdom by promoting aesthetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Chapter 3. So if you've been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now you must also put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another... Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also calling one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. 
Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Final chapter, chapter 4. Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the message to speak the mystery of the Messiah for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it as I am required to speak. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Tychicus, our dearly beloved brother, faithful servant, and fellow slave in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. He is with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone of the circumcision are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a slave of Christ Jesus, greets you. He is always contending for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Heroparchalus. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas greet you. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her home. When this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. All right, so we've just gone through. That's something uncommon. People don't seem to do this as much anymore. We just read an entire book here as part of a sermon. We, we just read through all of Colossians. Now, that's important because I think when we get the whole picture of what Paul has said, now we can kind of dig back in, but we've seen some things and can understand some things that we're going to talk about from the larger picture that happened later in the book. This city, Colossae, is, is situated in what we would consider to be modern-day Turkey. Um, it was famous for garments uh, because there was fertile land there. It had large flocks of sheep, so you had access to wool and, and chalky waters that were around it that were used for dyeing cloth. It's uh, about 100 miles east of Ephesus and about 12 miles from Laodicea. Uh, the church was not founded by an apostle. We see that as Paul reminds us that, that Epaphras is the one who actually started this church. So Paul is giving direction as an apostle to uh, this church that he didn't start, but he is making sure that they have direction when it comes to doctrine and other things. And part of the reason why this is important is that what was happening to this church at this time was that there was some heresy that was going on. 
there were some teachers who were promoting some false teaching, and very specifically, it was that Christ alone was not sufficient for salvation. There were people, they were worshiping angels, they were focusing on visions, and they were also following ceremonial laws for salvation and sanctification. You'll see him talking in there some about uh, the circumcision. They were intellectual. They were very intellectual. So education part was high. They were deep thinkers, and honest, but they were not truly spiritual because the reality is we've got to recognize that just because that someone is intellectually um, stronger than normal about the things even uh, about religion does not mean that they are truly spiritual in a godly sense. There are people that have a lot of information and a lot of knowledge about religion, even about Christianity, but yet they're off base because they're not spiritually connected. They're not allowing the Holy Spirit to guide and direct them. They've filled their heads with knowledge, but yet they, they don't really know how to accurately apply it. So they can end up off in heresy like people were around this. In, in the opening, we see that, that Paul refers to saints. He, he speaks about saints who are in this church. Um, where he says, to the saints in Christ at Colossae. Now, he wasn't addressing some select group of people who were better than other believers, and therefore they equated to, to saints and sainthood. Uh, rather, Paul's addressing the entire group of believers. He, he was referring to status. He was referring to spiritual status and, and not to some degree of holiness that was attained. I'll just be honest with you. I always struggle with hearing people say the phrase, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That bothers me because I don't find that to be an actual... I don't find that to truly be a biblical position. We know that Paul recognized himself because of his persecution of the church and all this, that he was the least and, and that he... You know, everybody in his mind and his his mindset was was better than him because he had persecuted and killed people within the body of Christ. But here's the thing: the Bible also tells us that that in us coming to Christ, that our old man gets crucified with Christ, and then that we're raised to walk in newness of life. That the old things are passed away, and behold, all things are are, are made new. So. It's not a reflection of saying, well, we are saints because of who we are. It is saying that we have been made to be a saint because of what Jesus has done. Because of his completed work, because of what he accomplished, then we have, have been translated from being a sinner to now being one who is in Christ and, and who our old person has been passed away and that we've been raised to walk in newness of life because of the completed work that Jesus did on Calvary. So when he's addressing saints, it's not to some, to some special group. Paul highlights two powerful New Testament themes in this. And one coming out of the gate is the fatherhood of God and in our adoption as his children... The second one is the deity of Christ, which is often referred to as the great Christology that's there in Colossians chapter 1. Now, adoption is a powerful 
statement. We, we see this when he talks about we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He establishes that God is the Father. Now, a lot of times we just, we just go right past that. And even in verse 2 when he says, um, who are, I'm writing this to you saints who are faithful brothers, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The fatherhood of God is powerful and it is important because with him being the father, then he has the, the ability to choose to adopt and to bring us into his family. If he is not the father, if he doesn't have fatherhood, then he can't adopt us in to be his children and therefore we cannot then receive the inheritance that he as a father passes along to his children. So the fatherhood of God and the adoption is important. And then the deity of Christ Jesus, because not only is he the father, but Jesus is his son, and Jesus is as much God as the father is God. Those are core doctrinal beliefs that we have to have established into our hearts. On this theme of adoption, J.I. Packer says this, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher than justification. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God it involves. Now that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful because we say, well, wait a minute. I, I, I thought the most powerful thing was then that, that I was justified. He, he just What he says is that, that there's a richness that comes because someone could justify you and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take away your sins and it's going to be just as if you'd never sinned. And so therefore, now you are going to, uh, to be able to enter into heaven. But, but God takes that a step further. He moves it beyond you getting free from your debt. And he adopts us into his family. Now the only way that he chooses to adopt us into his family because that he is holy and he is perfect and he is pure is that he has to remove our sin debt then. But he takes that that step further and says, not only will I just pay your penalty, but I will make you my child. I will make you my son and my daughter. We also see that there are three things that, that Paul ends up introducing. He talks about in, in verses 3, 4, and 5, he introduces this idea. He says, we've heard of your faith, we've heard of your love, and we've heard of about the hope that drives your love because you know about this hope that's reserved for you in heaven. These three graces are something that Paul often brings up when he's writing to churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's three very powerful foundational graces that, that Paul mentions, and those are not the only places, but, but it just showing you three different churches, the church at Corinth, to the church at Thessalonica, and then here we see it to the church at Colossae where he talks about faith, hope, and love. Faith is important because true faith in Christ justifies believers. Christianity starts here, that we 
put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Romans 5 and 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11 and 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, speaking about God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Faith. He says, I, uh, to the church here at Colossae, he says, we have heard about your faith in Christ Jesus, that you believe. It's not, it's not hope, it's faith. You believe, your, your belief in Jesus Christ, which justifies you and allows you to please God. The evidence of true faith is the fruits of regeneration becoming increasingly evident in our lives. I often hear people talk about and say, well, you know, somebody, you know, they, they gave their life to Christ when they were nine years old, and, but, you know, they're 50, and, and they've been off into drug addiction their whole life and prostitution and all of these other things, and, and, uh, but they gave their life to Christ when they were nine years old. I just don't find that to be a biblically accurate statement because... The evidence of true faith is that there is the fruits of regeneration that become increasingly evident in our, in our lives. Now, what, what are the fruit of regeneration? I, I find that we see that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. True saving faith, a conversion experience through faith in Jesus Christ, will begin to yield this fruit. And I promise you, it won't be 50 years later. God is not so weak that He will not begin to, through the Spirit, to show the fruit of regeneration in your life in fairly quick order. It doesn't mean that everything suddenly becomes perfect and not everything that, that you ever did wrong, now you no longer do any of it and you don't struggle with it. We know that's not true. We can see Paul in Romans 7 talk about, hey, the, the, the flesh and, the, and, and my spirit, they war with each other. I do the things sometimes I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. But yet the fruit of the Spirit operating in our life then will begin to bring love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Most of the things that we find ourselves involved in regarding sin are about a lack of self-control. The reason that we end up not demonstrating love is because that we get impatient. We, we don't demonstrate self-control about things. The reason we don't have joy is because we don't control. We don't exhibit that self-control that says, I need to trust in God. We begin to doubt. We begin to get frustrated. We don't have peace because of that. We don't show kindness because we don't exhibit self-control. Faithfulness. Faithfulness then is about discipline. It's about doing what we're supposed to do on a regular basis when we should. That has a lot to do with self-control. But then we see not only faith, we see love. And the, the love that, that is being referred to in this grace is not, it's not an eros love, which is a romantic love. It's not a phileo love, which is just a brotherly love. It's where we get the name for the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Now, this is about an agape love. 
This is about an unconditional love that, that we can only exhibit because of Jesus Christ. It's an all-embracing love, and it is for all the saints. In fact, he talks about that. He says that, that in, in verse 4, he says, We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Now, we need to just go ahead and, and be plain here for a moment. Because the reality is that too many times the love that we have for the saints are all the saints who are like us. And, and let me just break it down to the, very, to the very core level here. If we're not careful, sometimes what it turns to in the church world is we like all the saints that are white. Or, or if we're a black church, we like all the saints that are black. Or if we're a Hispanic church, we like all the saints. we got love for all the saints that are Hispanic. But, but we don't really demonstrate that same kind of love for saints who don't look like us or saints who don't like the type of music that we like. You know, they like Southern gospel and I like contemporary gospel and somebody else kind of likes a little element of maybe a little kind of hip-hop in some of that. And, and, or maybe they like traditional gospel. Maybe they like hymns. Churches have split up over this kind of stuff. There's churches that can't find enough love for all the saints to be able to, to get around the fact that, hey, we've got people in the congregation that kind of like this and this and that, and we really want to minister to everybody, but no, we're going to be a... a we're going to be a, a contemporary gospel kind of church. No, we're going to be an elevation music church. That's who we're going to be. No, we're going to be a southern gospel church, and we're not doing any of that other stuff. Hey, what you're really saying at times is, look, I am more concerned about having love for my preferences than I am for having love for all the saints. I need, I need to move on for that. But this is a powerful key to understanding an underlying aspect of the book of Colossians. This idea of having love for all of the saints. Here's why. Part of this local church membership, it included Philemon, who was a slave owner. Philemon was included in this. He was part of the local church. And we saw there in Colossians uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, we saw that there was a church member mentioned Onesimus. He said, in mentioning Onesimus, he said, who is one of you? Now here is the reality though. Onesimus was a runaway slave who had somehow done wrong to Philemon. Yet now, both Philemon and Onesimus have become followers of Christ. Onesimus has run away and he has come in contact with Paul. And so now he is aiding and serving Paul. And Paul, speaking to the church at Colossae, says, Hey guys, I need to kind of drop here in the middle of this. I need to drop a nugget. And this nugget is, I have someone here who is helping me and I am sending him back to you. But he is one of you. He wasn't just meaning he's from your area. He wasn't just meaning he's from your city. He was saying he is a brother in Christ just as you are. Onesimus is valuable to me, and he is a brother in Christ. He is one of you, and I am sending him back. But he had started off this, this letter to the church at Colossae by reminding them, I've heard about how you love all the saints. All the saints. 
Not some of the saints, not the saints on your socioeconomic level, not the saints who are, but all the saints. So let's take a quick look then at a letter that he writes specifically to Philemon. This is what Paul says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love and faith toward the Lord Jesus, listen to this, and for all the saints. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you as a part of myself. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He's especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner... Accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Listen to that. When Paul started speaking about the love that you have for all the saints, he is promoting a very specific lesson that he wants to be understood by Philemon. And he wants the whole church then to see play out. He wants all of them to know, because they know the story, they know exactly what it is that Onesimus has done in wronging Philemon. They're completely clear about whatever has happened. It, it's, there's nothing that's hidden there. So he wants them to understand then what happens when Jesus Christ changes somebody's heart. Paul goes so far in telling Philemon, he says, look, even though I've been here in chains, I have spiritually birthed him as a son. I led him to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why he ran away from the situation that he was in with you was so that he would come across my path, he would come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that when he comes back to you, he would be a benefit because he wouldn't only come back to work off his debt or whatever with you, but he would come back as a brother in Jesus Christ. I was reading a commentary by McNaughton, and he said, Such love is not restricted to those with whom we have a natural affinity or with, we, with whom we jail. 
but it extends to all the people of God irrespective of their color, age, temperament, etc. This kind of love, agape, is not confined to one social, ethnic, or cultural group. That is an underlying and powerful message that is going on in this book of Colossians because it's something that was happening within the church. He was sending Onesimus back, returning him to write what had been done wrong, but sending him back as a follower of Jesus Christ together with him. So we have faith and we have love, we have hope. When, when Paul refers to hope, he means that Christians have to act always with one eye on the ultimate goal, with one eye on the horizon. In fact, a, a proper eschatological worldview motivates proper behavior, and that worldview insists that we have a great future. Paul uses that same sort of future eschatological argument in 1 Corinthians 15 to motivate behavior. But here, the hope refers not to subjective hoping, but to the object of hope, which is we're going to be made like Christ in the future by means of resurrection. Paul tells him, he says, look, your hope is already reserved for you in the heavens. And that means that what exists already in promise in heaven will exist one day in reality on earth. Because when Christ returns, he's going to bring the heavenly good things with him or will cause them to happen when he returns. And in, in Paul's theology resurrection, eternal life, uh, glory, and the new Jerusalem, resurrection, eternal life, glory, and new Jerusalem are all linked to Christ. And they're linked to his return rather than to dying and going to heaven. So, so I think so many times we have made... The, the, the hope of our future to be about, oh, I can't wait till we get to heaven. Can't wait till we get to heaven. Paul instead is promoting the idea because this is what he says. He says, he says I've heard about your faith and I've heard about the love you have for all the saints because of the hope that is reserved for you in heaven. But what is that, that hope? What is that hope? That hope is Christ's return. Christ is the key both subjectively and objectively. In fact, in reading by uh, a, an article by Witherington about the letters to Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians, this is what uh, Witherington says, He will fulfill the objective hope when He comes, speaking of Christ. But He is already the basis of the Christian's subjective hope. Christ in us is both the foretaste of glory and the solid basis for the hope of human glorification. I mean, there it is. We're, we're, he's not just something that, that we are subjectively looking forward to. Uh, it, it's, it's right here. He is the object of our hope in the future, but He is causing it to happen in us right now. Christ in us. We get to experience an element of that hope in the here and now, not just, oh, one day when we get to heaven. I think we often miss this, even in old hymns and things like that. It seems that sometimes our focus, and, and, and I actually like the song, but uh, we used to sing an old hymn, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Now we get the right part then. When we all see Jesus, 
will sing and shout the victory. See, there's the important thing. Sometimes we just stop in the first part of that and go, oh, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that's going to be. Oh, I'm going to be running the streets of gold, and I'm going to go through the gates of pearl. Look, all of those things exist. That's all there. But the joy and the beauty of heaven, the hope of glory is Jesus Christ. The hope of, of glory, the, the hope that we have is to be in the presence of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. We're going to stop today here. We're, we're essentially into the middle of, of verse 5 because of that hope that's reserved for you in heaven. But I want to stop because I want to end this service today by asking you something very simple. Do you have true faith in Christ? Do you have true faith that's evidenced by the fruits of regeneration steadily growing in you? That love, joy, and peace, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control, those, those fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. Do you have that true faith being evidenced by the fruit steadily growing in you? Do you have a love for all the saints, regardless of their background, their origin, their similarities, or their lack thereof to you? Do you have an eye toward the hope of Christ returning? Or are you therefore living with that as a driving force in your life? See, that's, that's the missing part. If, if, we are, if we are looking forward in hope toward Jesus returning, then it should be affecting how we're living today so that we are prepared for His return. Not prepared to earn his favor, not prepared to earn salvation. Those things he gives us as great gifts. But instead, so that we could be fully pleasing to him. That we could be living a life that glorifies him, that, that, that magnifies him, that lifts him up, and that, that he can look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That we're living a life that is affected by the future hope in the here and now. So I just have to ask you, if that's not you, if you look at that and you say, you know what, I, I, I don't have the evidence of the fruit regeneration growing in me. I don't have love for all the saints. I, if I'm just being honest in myself, I love most saints, but boy, when I see people like that, I don't, I don't have love for them. I'm not talking about full agreement with people. I'm talking about do you have the love of God for people? Or, hey, you, you may be saying to yourself, I, I mean, I have hope, I, I, I hope in Christ, but I, I don't know that I'm living that way all the time. Then I'm going to ask you, if you don't have true faith in Christ, it's evident, then I'm going to ask you, won't you let the Lord become the, 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 the Savior and the Lord of your life today? And won't you allow Jesus Christ to do that? Not just to be Savior, because a lot of people want it, well, you know, I, I don't want to have to, I don't want to die and go to hell. That's not all that he wants. It's not just an issue of saying, I, don't, I want God to be my Savior and get me a get-out-of-hell-free card, but, but I also want him to be the Lord of my life. I want him to direct my path and direct my steps. What about if, if you're not showing that love for all the saints and you're not living according to that hope, but you've allowed Jesus Christ into your life and he's wanting to change you? So I'm going to ask you, won't you allow him and won't you allow his gospel of good news to become the driving force in your everyday life? Won't you allow him to change you and to make you more in the image of his son? 
That's what I'm asking you today. I want us to bow our heads and pray. Ask God to speak to our hearts and reveal to us what He's wanting to do in our lives. And I pray that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart right now. Whether you're needing to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or whether you're needing to repent and say, God, I, I just want to confess that I've not been allowing you to be the driving force in my life. God, I need you to change how I am toward others. I need you to change how my life is lived out. I pray that's what's going to happen today. If everybody bow your heads and let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer.